99.5 WGAR now presents Sunday Digest, a program featuring interesting conversation with people making a difference in Northeast Ohio and around the nation with award-winning broadcaster Ken Robinson. And now here's Ken and Sunday Digest on WGAR. Good morning and welcome to Sunday Digest. Glad to have you along. On today's show, we're going to take a look at sports. We're going to talk with Browns legend Dick Shafraff about some of the problems the NFL's old-timers are facing. He says many of the men that made the game great are suffering in poverty. Also, if you vote for sport or pleasure, you'll want to hear the latest about lake levels. Fred Snyder of Ohio State says they're continuing to drop. We'll find out why on today's edition of Sunday Digest. But first, the Cleveland Indians. It's not just a baseball team. The Indians are a money-making machine for the North Coast. The tribe has a major impact creating jobs around Greater Cleveland, according to Dave Nolan, president of the Greater Cleveland Convention and Visitors Bureau. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. I understand that the tribe generates millions of dollars for the local economy? Well, it really does. It's really the course of the season that all the Indians uh, are gathering and uh, bringing uh, fans from all over the state and the region and approximately about $250 million per season. So, of course, we're very excited about those sales because job creation and sales is what this is really all about. $250 million per season. Correct. That's a big price tag. If you take a look at anticipating, once again, that we'll get close to a sellout over the years, uh, we average about 10% of that audience coming in from out of town, and the rest are, are basically within the region. But when you include the price of a ticket, uh, some cheeseburgers, parking, souvenirs... It adds up to quite a bit of spending per uh, per visitor and uh, per resident, and at the end of the season, it's about 250 million in our coffers. So it's been a great boost uh, to Cleveland's economy, and of course, a wonderful pride in sports. Also, now where does all that money go? At, uh, <laughs> a lot of people say, "Well, gee, all that money's being pumped into the economy, but my paycheck still looks the same." Well, I think what it does is is keeps uh, job creation, and when you have job creation, it keeps uh, employment strong, and when you have employment, you have less uh, taxes being paid out for unemployment costs and social services costs, and uh, what it also does is add to development of other businesses in the greater Cleveland area. If you take a look at Gateway over the last six years, you'll notice uh, tons of new businesses that have opened up from hotels, restaurants, to retail shops, and, and in fact, has revitalized downtown. So what's in it for the local resident, besides uh, the wonderful uh, ability to go to a ball game, is really uh, keeping an economy alive. And uh, when we have the sum of the parts working together, that means the quality of life for all the residents in the region is that much better. And, and clearly, uh, Gateway and the Cleveland Indians play a major role in that. Anticipating, once again, there's a sellout. There's about $766,000 attributed uh, per game uh, to uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, cash registers again. And if you spread that out... Again, take a look at it. You pay for a ticket, uh, you pay for meals, you pay for transportation, you pay for a little bit of shopping, and combine that, it's about $176 per person. And uh, that's uh, just representing the people from out of town. In town, spend about uh, $62, $63 per day. And uh, again, uh, when you have um, that amount of people coming in, uh, it really uh, multiplies very quickly, and you write almost a million dollars per ball game, which is great for all of us. Now, when the Indians do well, when they're playing well, it uh, kind of boosts the city's image. Is there a dollar figure on uh, that uh, image? You know? No, it's really, uh, that's the, again, the good news. It's very uh, much impossible to count, uh, you know, the subjective and uh, a lot of the things that it does for us above and beyond 
the cash registers ringing. But if you take a look at our ability to be on, you know, national television and sports reporting throughout the country day in and day out, again, as you mentioned so wisely, when you win, uh, you really hit the headlines across the country, and that puts Cleveland on the map. And uh, the direct relationship is people begin to think about Cleveland, hear about Cleveland. So the next time that uh, job opportunity comes along from recruiting or joining a company in the great, greater Cleveland area, uh, top of head, top of mind is that much better, and it begins to pay dividends from us. At least that person has an impression that it's a sports town, it's a town in the know, and uh, most recently with our ability to sell out ball game after ball game, it just, it just creates that curiosity. We see that in tourism. We see that in meetings and conventions, about 36% higher in attendance. And at the end of the day, once again, that word, the sum of the parts working together, uh, make for good things for Greater Cleveland. Cash register plus image plus national exposure uh, means uh, good things for our economy, and uh, that's exactly why we're excited about the Indians. Now, if the Indians make it into the playoffs, uh, I know that's getting way, way out there right now, but uh, if they make it into the playoffs and do pretty well, uh, how much more than the quarter billion that we usually reap in uh, every year will we go over? Well, a postseason, a postseason appearance means about $50 million to us every time that the Indians go into postseason. Uh, for the two uh, World Series events, about $100 million, which is all incremental. And the distinction there in the large growth in sales is because there's more ticket allocation uh, through Major League Baseball to the uh, visiting clubs, and therefore we have no, uh, higher spending because people are spending the amount of times, usually three, uh, four nights in the hotel during a seven-game uh, series. Uh, and that's tremendous for us. So uh, regular season is wonderful. Then the uh, cream on top of uh, uh, the uh, season would be the sales as relates to uh, relates to off season, and that's incremental. Plus, as you can recall from being in the World Series, what a heck of a lot of fun for Clevelanders as we celebrated in Public Square with the Indians parade, the rally, the uh, just the feeling of the city, the euphoria. And again, uh, that's why uh, it puts us on the map. We're excited about it combination between sales and a lot of excitement uh, makes for a good day in Cleveland. Oh, okay. I'm starting to feel better about the season now. <laughs> well, I hope so. I, you know, people invested a lot of money in this, uh, this uh, Major League Baseball from the owners to our residents with the buildings of these stadiums, and uh, it's good to focus in on what the return has been. And if you look at the return on the investment, it's been tremendous. And although, you know, it's very, very high-stakes game to compete in Major League Baseball, when you're successful, like the Indians have been, it really does contribute a lot to our economy and job creation and really a complete renaissance of downtown. And in order for a successful a cities to be truly successful, I think you have to agree that a healthy downtown makes for a healthy suburban area, and that's why the regions prosper as the whole. We need a great downtown, a place where the core of the population can visit and enjoy it, and when you do that, uh, people move out in the suburbs, and uh, everybody in the region uh, benefits from it. So we're excited that downtown has turned around, and uh, uh, we're going to keep the ball rolling, hopefully onto the World Series, uh, wish the Indians well, and uh, buy a few cheeseburgers along the way. Yeah. But, but where does it fit in with the mix of, of the other uh, linchpins of economic development, though? Uh, the Indians are important, but what about where does it fit in with schools, improving the schools, improving uh, the housing stock, and bringing high-tech jobs to town? Well, I think they are all complementary. You know, one without the other means that there's holes in the dam, and uh, you have to have a, a, a major uh, investment and uh, a force moving in several di different directions that, at the end of the day, when you're moving north, 
they meet and everybody uh, is happier. So uh, one could not, uh, in an urban population of 2.9 million people, have the only sole benefit of having a preoccupation with just public schools. It's just not reality. So uh, there has to be attention to that, but they have to move uh, unilaterally and parallel and uh, with equal force. And I think the end return is that, for example, if the Indians are successful and we're creating these jobs, uh, when we address issues in public schools, we have jobs for people who graduate from uh, Cleveland Public Schools to go into. Uh, if we didn't have a vital and prospering downtown, where would we be with uh, sales tax? Uh, sales tax is a, uh, directly goes back to uh, the state. Where would we be with property tax uh, that goes back into the city coffers? So as you can see, if we stretch this scenario out, that uh, the sum of the parts, again, to use that word, are working uh, in a complementary fashion, and therefore uh, when you are successful in all areas, uh, you're going to have a great quality of life. And the name of the game is providing a quality of life. So public schools, so high-tech jobs are all working that this whole region is prospering. And uh, that's exactly why uh, you can't just rest on one industry or one issue uh, because there's a lot of issues that we have to wrestle with and hopefully uh, better than our competitors. Hopefully we're making progress. Uh, well, I think we are. <laughs> <laughs> Well, very good. Really appreciate uh, the insight. Well, I appreciate the call, and uh, go Tribe. Go Tribe. Dave Nolan, president of the Cleveland Convention and Visitors Bureau. Now let's go from baseball to football. From WGAR, this is Sunday Digest with Ken Robinson. You know, when you think of the National Football League, you think of glitz, glamour, and multi-million dollar athletes. But many former greats of the game are living in poverty. Dick Schaffraff is with the Cleveland chapter of the NFL Alumni Association. He was born in Wayne County. He played for the Browns for 13 years, including the 1964 championship team. He was named All-Pro six times as an offensive left tackle, and he served as state senator. Thanks for joining us. An honor to have you with us today. First of all, uh, tell us about the NFL Alumni Association. Ken, uh Football League Alumni Association all uh, got together and started in 1966, and it was uh, funded and started for the dire need of the old-timers. As you know, some of the guys have played, even when I came in, pre-65, it's an embarrassment, uh, and it's really a, um, a shame to see what some of these guys live on. There's no good pension at all that they, uh, they have to exist on. So it was set up to help them, and then it gradually grew also into uh, caring for kids because all athletes uh, have a soft spot in their heart for kids, and uh, they need encouragement, and they all uh, uh, follow and admire somebody. They're going to imitate some athlete someplace, somewhere along the line. So we all know that. So we're trying to give children who... uh, uh, don't have an opportunity to have uh, uh, a tie-in with an athlete and maybe is looking for a surrogate parent. A lot of breakups of families today. So uh, we have that movement going that we have more and more athletes out, hands-on touch with children that, are, uh, that need surrogate-type parents or some hero to uh, just look up to. So we're looking for those kind of things, not only that, but charities. And uh, uh, so that 
as I said, became our biggest movement. That sounds wonderful. So often we hear about, you know, our sports figures being proper role models, that kind of thing. Well, that's right, and a lot of them don't admit it, but uh, I believe in my, uh, my heart that there's not a kid out there that doesn't idolize somebody. Now, you don't have to be a, uh, an athlete to have... Uh, to make sure you're doing a good example for kids. You better do that as a parent or whether you're a teacher or whatever, you're just working with a child. But those those kids are absorbing and sucking up everything you're doing and saying. So we all have a responsibility to, uh, to set a good example for kids. And this is really an exciting arena because it's exciting to see one child attitude change uh, just by being influenced or being around you. How true, how true. Now, you mentioned some of the uh, troubles that some of the uh, old-time players have uh, befallen. Yeah. Um, now, we, when we think of uh, football, we think of big money, big glitz, and, uh, you know, super athletes, and, you know, you made the big time, you're doing well. But it, but like you say, it hasn't always been that way. Uh, Kenny, you know, it's, it's true. Uh, up to the pre Let's say up to the uh, mid-50s, if you take all football, baseball uh, players that ever played in professional, uh, professional teams, there was about an average of $6,000, $7,000 from 20s, 30s, 40s, and uh, up through the 50s. And then all of a sudden, it started moving a little bit higher. Mid-60s, it was about 14000 by the end of the 60s, because of television, it was over 20 was the average. And from there, it exploded. It went to 150,000 in the mid-70s. It went to 400,000 mid-80s. And today, uh, of course, you know, baseball, basketball is approaching $2 million average salaries in football, not too far behind a million six. So if you take up to the pre-65, uh, nobody was concerned about agents. Nobody was t- concerned about salaries. Uh, it was it was more or less playing for the privilege and the honor to be a professional. But all of a sudden, because of television and uh, personal advertising and endorsements, this thing just broke wide open. So uh, we have to now look back at these old timers that started the uh, started the game and stayed in there and, and gave their lives toward it. And that's where I say it's so sad to see they, some of these guys played 8, 10, 12 years, and their pension is $100, $200 a month. Um, it's just a, very, very, a big embarrassment to the uh, – to, and, and they won't say anything. They have too much pride, and they don't ask for anything. But uh, let's face it and be honest, it is a sad situation. So many of the, the old-timers are facing uh, – are dealing with economic hardship here. Yes. Uh, that's what I'm saying. If, mm-hmm. And, and they, they have too much pride to be identified, but pre-65, I'm talking about, these old-timers, well into 70% of them are in the poverty area. So wow. it's, it's something that uh, we've uncovered and we're trying to deal with it. Now what about injuries? Uh, sometimes when, you're, uh, when you don't have a lot of money, you can't get those aches and pains taken care of. Well, <laughs> you're right there too, Ken. There's the insurance companies were pretty clever. If you didn't claim something within uh, five years, there was no way you could go back on them, and of course, uh, and try to collect. But uh, 
uh, I don't think, I think, as I mentioned before, the pride of these athletes, even though they can't walk today, they don't even think of suing anybody. But uh, you're right. They played with helmets or were leather, no face masks. They played with other pads on them that, uh, you know, everybody laughs at today. They were never tested, never, uh, uh, there was a lot of injuries because of the kind of equipment you wore. Then uh, also the cleats that came off of your shoes and, Sometimes all you had was a spike, a metal spike rather than a rubber uh, uh, screw-on cleat, um, and, and many other things. You know, it was like the water I mentioned before they couldn't take. They had to drive, ride in buses and trains. And remember when I first started, we rode in a plane, uh, four-engine planes. They didn't have jets uh, in those early times. So Everything was to cut corners, make sure that uh, you could just play, but nobody made any big money. Do you still feel some of the aches and pains from your playing days? Oh, of course I do. Oh. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I had uh, just casual injuries. I never had anything serious, but I, I did have broken nose three times, a broken cheek and cheekbone. I had uh, uh, several broken fingers, broken toe. Uh, I had a hernia operation and uh i have three cervical discs in my neck and three in my lower back that are herniated from uh cause of football but uh all players i i can cite a lot of them a lot worse than that so all went through uh, a lot of injuries and a lot of serious uh, uh injuries that are now taking their toll on them as they limp and and try to get along we we know and we're dealing with those problems but uh that's the fact of life, and uh, they enjoyed it, and most of them say they've never taken it any other way. They just loved uh, the whole experience. They were the luckiest people in the world. Well, that was my final question. I wanted to uh, uh, ask you about uh, about that. Uh, I guess being a state senator is a lot more comfortable, a lot more cushy than uh, being out on the uh, gridiron all the time, but which which is the most fun for you? Which was the most fun, being a state senator or playing football for the Cleveland Browns? Well, uh, Ken, I, I've been lucky in my life. I, uh, you know, I was a farm boy that grew up uh, close to the Amish, and I, uh, you know, I, I never was exposed to electricity or a telephone or a toilet in the house. Until I was in the ninth grade. Um, you might say my life has changed quite a bit. I got to play with the Browns, and I've got to uh, uh, be a state senator. But I think that uh, if I had a choice, uh, I would not have changed anything that's had in my life. It's just been great. But football uh, uh, is probably, well, I think I'd rather played baseball if it had changed one thing. I, that was my <laughs> biggest dream. But I ran into a guy named Woody Hayes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Woody would not let me change my mind. I had a contract to go play for the uh, Cincinnati Reds. But he said, you need a college education, Dick, and we're going to send you to Ohio State. And uh I, I wasn't too excited about it, but my mom and dad love Woody, and they said there's no place you're going. So, but uh, I, I loved football, as I said before. Uh, uh, most athletes before me uh, had jobs, and I did too. I worked for the post office and worked for a construction company at the same time. In fact, I had an option, Ken, to do one of three things when I came out of Ohio State. I could work for a construction company back in my hometown, Worcester, for six thousand a year, I could have been a teacher for six thousand a year, or I could have played for the Cleveland Browns for six thousand a year. And I asked my mom, "What do you think I should do?" And she said, "Dick, 
why don't you play football, look good on your resume. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I became a football player. Uh, well, that's great. Keep up the good work, Ken. Absolutely. Okay. Take care. Uh-huh, bye. Dick Shafraff, former state senator and Cleveland Browns legend, he was on the team for 13 years, served as team captain, was all-pro six times as an offensive tackle, played under coaches Paul Brown and Blanton Collier. He also canoed across Lake Erie nonstop, making the 79-mile trip in 17 and a half hours. And speaking of Lake Erie, we've got important news for boaters as Sunday Digest continues. Stay tuned. 99.5 You know, these could be difficult times for sport and pleasure boaters on Lake Erie. Lake levels have been low the past few years, and now there's word water levels will continue to fall. Joining us now is Fred Snyder, District Sea Grant Specialist with the Ohio State University Extension Office. Fred, what's going on with Lake Erie? The entire upper Midwest has had below average precipitation for several years, and this is what has led us to the low lake level that we saw last summer. Uh, The current situation is that they once again had a below-average amount of snowfall in the upper Great Lakes Basin, so there will be less water to come into the lakes from the melting snow up north. Now, 90% of Lake Erie's water comes from the upper Great Lakes, so our lake level is very much tied to that. We currently see a situation where uh, Lake Superior is uh, at its lowest level since 1926, and Lake Michigan and Huron are at their lowest level since 1965. So much of the meltwater that will come down will, of course, have to bring those lakes up before we see much of an effect in Lake Erie. So currently the prediction from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is for the June water level. June is normally the uh, highest point of the year, and this June they are predicting about a 10% uh, lower level, or rather a 10-inch lower level than was seen last summer. Wow, so maybe a foot lower, huh? Possibly a foot. It could be plus or minus uh, that roughly 10-inch prediction. That's a six-month forecast, six months ahead. But uh, basically we do see that the ingredients are all there for a lower lake level than we saw last summer. And last summer did cause a lot of problems for people. Wow, looks like we're into a trend here where lake levels just seem to remain at these uh, low, historically low levels. uh, And uh, it's all because of a lack of uh, rain and snow. Any idea how long this climate uh, situation is going to be with us? Well, we certainly have no way of knowing how long the climate uh, is going to be like this, but we can uh, take some lessons from history. We saw that the lowest levels that people were around to measure occurred in the 1930s in the Dust Bowl period, and we are still going to be 15 to 18 inches higher than that. Uh, The next lowest period fell in the 1960s, and we are really experiencing similar uh, conditions to the 1960s. Uh, It is worth noting that since we were at a near-record high in 1997, that the uh, lake has declined about three and a half feet. So uh, to say that we're 18 inches above the record low water, uh, well, we, we understand that that could change rather quickly. Now, what does this mean for boaters? We understand it's uh, bad news for people that uh, are involved in shipping. Well, yes. Uh, this certainly uh, 
means that the uh, Corps of Engineers will have to uh, be sure that uh, shipping channels are maintained at the uh, uh, mandated depth of 28 feet, and uh, they, they generally are very effective at doing that. So um, basically most ships would only have problems if they are, say, coming into Toledo with a strong southwest wind, which pushes water out of western Lake Erie and makes a temporary lowering of the water level. But otherwise, the shipping channels are normally maintained at a uh, regulated depth. But uh, many boaters have become very accustomed to just running around and uh, zipping across the lake, across some of the shallow areas over the past couple of decades, without much of a problem. And last year, we did see a lot of people sustaining damage to their boats because they hit rock bars and shoals and things that they had been accustomed to going over. And uh, this year, that situation will probably be even more so. So people really need to just pay attention, look at navigational charts, and be familiar with the depths of the water where you plan to go boating. So there could be problems for uh, pleasure boaters, not only uh, out on the lake, but uh, maybe even uh, launching and uh, landing as well? Some of the uh, ramps that are very shallow may have some problems. They may need some maintenance dredging this year. It's certainly going to depend upon uh, uh, which ramp we're talking about and the size of the boats going in. But uh, another thing that people may want to uh, uh, be alert about is that some of the basins or harbors that they may use may be relatively shallow already. And if they're out on the lake during a period when a strong offshore wind comes up, they should remember that that will temporarily lower the water level even more. So uh, it could have some implications for getting back in. If you were kind of kicking mud on your way out and you get a strong offshore wind, you might want to get in before uh, the lake has time to drop very much. What about fishing? Uh, is it going to improve or, or make fishing worse? It's not likely that this lake-level fluctuation is going to have much of an effect on sport fishing success. Uh, much of that has to do with the size of the fish population and just the weather that we get on that particular day, the wind and the waves, the muddiness of the water, and things like that. Uh, the walleye uh, population is probably in a little better shape this year than it was last year. There's a large crop of two-year-old walleyes available. Those are usually aggressive feeders, and so uh, we're kind of hoping that we're going to see a, a little faster fishing during the early months of the year this summer. Well, I guess it's something to keep an eye on. We certainly will. And, uh, well, thanks a lot. Uh, really appreciate uh, the information. Hopefully uh, won't be too much trouble for boaters this year. Well, if they uh, just sort of uh, plan ahead and pay attention to water depths, they're going to be okay. But they just have to be aware that uh, those spots that they used to run over that were, you know, three or four feet deep and caused no problems are now going to be right under the surface. Fred Snyder, District Sea Grant Specialist with the Ohio State University Extension Office. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next week on Sunday Digest. This has been Sunday Digest with WGAR's Ken Robinson, a public affairs presentation of 99.5 WGAR. The views and opinions expressed on the show were those of the participants and not necessarily those of WGAR, its staff and management. Join us next week for another edition of Sunday Digest. 
Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing. Hey, look alive! Everything lights up, makes you want to shout. Talk about happiness, that's what we're talking about. You'll look great in a Panoramic Lifestyle T-shirt. Nobody won't bring you happiness, but we know who will. Come on now, smile, get happy. Order your T-shirt today at plclothing.store. plclothing.store. 